Welcome to the Choosing to Stay podcast. We're your hosts, Hallie Roderick and Stephanie Hamby, certified relationship and recovery coaches. We specialize in supporting couples who are healing from infidelity and betrayal. We invite you to join us each week as we explore the challenges and joys of the recovery journey for couples who are choosing to stay in a relationship after betrayal. We'll encourage you with hope for healing and transformation. Connection, empathy, growth, choosing to stay. Are you a couple looking to rebuild after betrayal, but are unsure what healthy boundaries look like in order to have safety and healing moving forward? Then please join my good friend, Ashley Levitt and I in our upcoming course on boundaries for couples. It's going to be starting in the new year. Allie and I are so excited to bring you this class. If you're ready to rebuild and reshape your relationship after it's been rocked with trauma, this course is for you. Please check the show notes for a link to get on our email and information list for this class. And we hope to see you in the new year. Welcome to today's episode on the Choosing to Stay podcast. We're so glad that you joined us. Today, we're going to be talking about some terms that might be unfamiliar to you. I was leading a group yesterday and I had a new gal that joined us and she just was taking notes, taking notes. And at the end, she goes, wow, I'm just making notes of all these words that I've never heard before. And I didn't know what they meant. And I need to learn what all these terms were and what these mean to me. And so I think that sometimes before you've experienced betrayal through either infidelity or discovery that your husband has some sexual misbehaviors, you don't even know that this world of betrayal trauma exists. And then you get thrown into it and all of a sudden everything starts to make sense in your life, but yet you're learning all these new terms and language. It's almost like a a new language that you've never heard before. And so today we're going to talk about some of those terms and some of those words that if you're new to this journey, that you might not fully understand. And so we probably can't get to all of them because there's a lot. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hit a few common ones today and let's start with betrayal trauma. And so just so you know, if you want to know more about betrayal trauma, we dove deep into this in episode four. So go back and listen to that episode. But betrayal trauma is when a spouse discovers that their husband or wife has been engaging in either a sex addiction or affair, any sort of sexual misbehavior outside of their relationship. And it can be traumatic for a spouse. And so you might experience PTSD type symptoms. You might have flashbacks. You might have nightmares. You might feel totally unsafe. There's a lot of things that happen in your brain when you've experienced betrayal trauma. And so your brain goes into a fight, flight, or freeze state because all of a sudden the person that you thought you could trust the most is no longer safe. And that puts your body and your brain into a state of hyper-awareness, hyper-vigilance, and it's a really uncomfortable thing to experience. Yeah. Something I would add to that is when there's not like a specific definition for trauma, but it is the overwhelm to the coping capacities. And so there's like this emotional overwhelm and to try to sort out what all is happening inside of the body is really difficult for the partner. And it truly is like an overwhelming feeling um, that just fills the whole body. And when that happens, it causes responses and reactions from the trauma. So the person starts acting out of those fight, flight, or freeze and to regain safety back in their lives. So, 
And it's, it's super confusing for both spouses because yeah. the one who's experiencing the betrayal trauma, I mean, they may have had other experiences in their life that were traumatic and things, but if you've never experienced betrayal in this way before, it's a scary place to be and to feel all of a sudden unsafe in your environment that you thought was safe and with the person you thought was safe. So it's kind of scary and confusing for the betrayed spouse. And it's also confusing for the one who has acted out because all of a sudden their partner's behaviors may seem actually irrational in some ways. And it's a confusing place for both parties to be. And, and a lot of times I've heard with my clients who are the ones that have acted out in their mind, their acting out has nothing to do with their betrayed partner. And for the person that's experiencing the betrayal trauma, it has everything to do with us. Most people that are acting out are really good at compartmentalizing. And so they've had this part of their life over here that has been totally separate from their marriage, but unbeknownst to their partner that was happening. And so when those two worlds collide and, and that discovery happens or disclosure, however it comes out, the behaviors are confusing for both parties. So go back and listen to episode four if you want to dig more into what betrayal trauma is and have some greater understanding around that. Yeah. So since we are talking about words that are used and language that is used in healing and recovery, you just used one and it was the compartmentalization. I was just thinking how important it is. Like, I don't want to jump off of the partner betrayal before moving into this because there was something else there with that. And that is, it is an attachment wound. So partner betrayal causes the attachment uh, to be severed. And that's where a lot of the, the responses come. So whether the one who has acted out or not, like even from their perspective, how they see it, you know, well, this wasn't about you. It still is that attachment wound. So the person is responding because there has been severing in the attachment, like the bonds of the relationship. But really quick to touch on compartmentalization, I call this like the double-mindedness or literally aspects of the life of the person's life are put into like, I visualize it like containers. So like in this area, this is who I am. This is how I show up. This is what's going on in my life here. And I can put that in this box, close off the lid, and then I can be the dad over here to my children. I can be the mom or whatever it is. And it's very separated in the person's life. And that's how they function. They function from the compartments and it's usually not even known by them. They don't recognize that they're doing that till they get into recovery. But yes, compartmentalization is a word that we use a lot in healing. And I think that's how people who normally in their normal value system wouldn't be acting out in those ways. They compartmentalize it. They like open that box, put the lid on it and then pull out the other box and they don't cross over. Yeah. It doesn't make sense in my brain. Like I have a really hard time comprehending it because my brain has all the boxes open all the time. And that's what we learn about in addiction and in infidelity is that's how people justify it. Is they're in this box and in their conscious mind, they're not making a connection that those worlds are crossing over doesn't make the pain any less for the betrayed partner to understand that that's how that happened, but it's good to have the awareness that that's a thing that they get really good at compartmentalizing. Yeah. I always tell my partners in the education about this is that it's 
used to normalize the experience, it doesn't make you feel any better. We hear compartmentalization and sometimes a partner will be like, well, that makes me even more angry that he Mm -hmm. was able or she was able to put this over here and not even include me in it. Like, why wasn't I in that compartment? But it is good to understand what is happening in the mind and the body of someone who is acting out. And I just want to be clear too, that it's not an excuse. Like, it's not like this makes it okay, or this is, you know, a justification for the sexual misbehaviors. I just want to be very clear about that. That's not an excuse. They still have to take ownership of their behaviors, but it is a way that they justify in their mind the behaviors when they're in it. Right. So the other one that I used that I think we should touch on is D-Day. I didn't really ever know what D-Day was before this journey. I've heard it termed a couple of different things. can be Discovery Day, Disclosure Day. I've heard it called Destruction Day, whatever you call it. But it's the day that everything became clear to the betrayed partner where they were either informed by a third party or something they discovered or from the person that's had the sexual misbehaviors coming and disclosing to them what's been happening. And it's an interesting thing because somehow it seems like our body remembers certain days. And so a lot of my betrayed partners, when the anniversary of their D-Day is coming up, their body is like on high alert again. And even if their relationship is moving towards repair around that anniversary, still their body kind of remembers dates. And so what else would you add to D-Day? I think you covered it really well. My brain was going to the being on high alert and how it's really common. I know this doesn't really fall under the like definitions that we're using today, but it is really common. And I just wanted to normalize that for partners who are coming up on anniversaries of past memories. So it could be like anniversaries of something that used to be special to you or anniversaries of your trauma experience. Those things, it's very normal to have mm-hmm. that feeling and being on high alert and I just want to normalize that and say that it's okay for you to be experiencing that um, coming into dates and especially holidays. Like we're coming up on holidays and those are usually kind of tainted. It seems pretty common that there's D-Days around holidays. We don't really want to have to attach a terrible memory like this to a holiday, but it's like, even if your D-Day was around or a month before you remember that that Christmas was hell because we had just discovered this or, you know weren't feeling safe. So that's a real thing, which kind of leads me to, we were talking about high alert. Another term that you hear is triggered. And I actually prefer to use the word activated. I don't really love the word triggered, but I like activated and activated or triggered is something that I think both parties can experience it. Mm -hmm. Um, I often find that are the betrayed spouse obviously has a lot of trauma with the PTSD and the the betrayal trauma that they're experiencing. And it's not uncommon for the one with the sexual misbehaviors to also have some trauma that they're dealing with, depending on how things were discovered. Oftentimes that's traumatic. So we're a lot of times dealing with two people with trauma. And even if they have an addiction or other sexual misbehaviors, a lot of times some early childhood trauma might have led them to the behaviors that caused the the addiction or the acting out. And so this is part of the thing that makes this whole thing messy is because we have two people that get activated really easily. 
And whoever has been doing the betraying, when their spouse comes to them in an activated or triggered state, that activates them. Then we've got two partners who are activated. And until we learn to regulate ourselves and to work through those triggers that come up, that can create some really intense emotional conversations and interactions with each other. Yeah. A couple of things that I thought about when with the triggers is that it doesn't have to be a specific place, a location or something that happens. Like it can be picked up from any of our senses. So it could just be a thought or a smell or anything that reminds the person with the partner who has been betrayed, their body starts responding the same way that it did when they first discovered. So their body is reacting out of safety in those triggered moments. But you also mentioned something about self-regulation. And so that's another term that we use and often relate that to the window of tolerance, which is another term that we use in this field. We have this window of tolerance and in a healthy person that we have this space of like in our day, we're kind of popping in and out of it. We remain within the window. We may come out, but we come back in. And when there has been trauma, that window is much smaller. So we are working Mm -hmm. with a much smaller space before we are dysregulated and out of that state. And so a lot of the work individually, and I say for both, both individuals is how do I regulate my system, get, get my nervous system back in a, in a state of calm and in a place of safety so that I can show up for my spouse. And because we mirror, we mirror what the other person is when they are dysregulated, it is natural for us to get dysregulated. And so we have to retrain our bodies. Can we show up for someone else who is dysregulated and remain regulated ourselves? And that takes a lot of work to learn healthy coping strategy. We talk about that in my helper heal class a lot for the guys, because, you know, I validate that they're activated and if they want to create safety, emotional safety, psychological safety for their spouse, they need to be able to regulate what's coming up for them and stay out of shame and stay out of defensiveness and, and those other in kind of automatic reactions that come. There's a lot of weight on their shoulders of learning to regulate what's coming up for themselves so they can rebuild that trust and create safety in an effort to repair the relationship going forward. We talk about how do we regulate our bodies? And I like to think about my body is my biggest tool to do that with. So deep breathing. Sometimes I take a drink of water. You can splash water on your face, get some fresh air. There's lots of things you can do to get regulated. And if you need some help on that, make sure you get a coach or a therapist, somebody that can help you learn some skills and tools to regulate yourself, because that I think is important and it's almost essential. If you want relational repair, we can't really get to relational repair when there's one or both of you that are constantly activated all the time. We need to be able to get grounded back into who we are at our core and be able to move out of our emotional brain into our logical brain so that we can see things with a clear lens that isn't clouded by our strong emotions. Yeah. And when we are triggered or even through the trauma of this for both parties, we pick up coping strategies and they serve us. They keep us safe. They are survival mechanisms that we pick up. And 
they are there for a purpose. And I say they're there for a time being. They're not to remain for the rest of our lives. Our bodies will start to physically react from staying in that heightened state or even the hypoarousal of the window of tolerance, staying in that lowered area. Our bodies start to physically react to staying in those. So we have to learn what are some healthy coping strategies to move me through those. We can't avoid triggers. They're going to come. How do Mm -hmm. we move through those in, in a healthy way? that we're not holding on to these coping strategies that are no longer serving us. Yeah. And it takes practice. You can learn about it and you can read about it, but the ability to be able to regulate yourself in the middle of an activated state happens when you're practicing, when you're not activated, like you got to practice those skills when you're not activated so that when you are activated, your brain goes, Oh, I need to use that tool. I need to use that breathing exercise. Your brain can actually think about it. So it's a practice. It's like a skill you can learn. And so that's been my experience. And it's also what I like help my clients with make it an everyday, like maybe multiple times a day, let's do this grounding exercise so that your body actually gets comfortable in the calm, grounded and neutral. Because when you've experienced something traumatic, the overdrive becomes comfortable. Like that's where your body, that's becomes your new normal. And it doesn't serve us well, physically, emotionally, any, any of the ways it doesn't serve us well to stay in that activated overdrive state. And so, but our body's not comfortable in the calm, grounded and neutral. So we have to train it to be comfortable back in there when we are in a safe space and get, get used to what that feels like again. When you use the word unhealthy coping mechanisms, let's talk about the other side of that. Sometimes we pick up these unhealthy coping mechanisms and a lot of times that's another term we use unhealthy coping coping mechanisms you also might hear it called addictive behaviors mm-hmm. and those unhealthy coping mechanisms a lot of times are what lead to the sexual acting out and there's things that we've picked up along the way maybe even core beliefs that haven't served us well a lot of times if we feel emotions we're seen as weak mm-hmm. especially men in our society They're like, don't show your emotions. And so in, I mean, they're experiencing them, whether they're identifying them or not, they're experiencing them. And then when they have uncomfortable emotions, they don't want to feel it. So they shove it down, shove it down, ignore it, or they put out the fire of the uncomfortable um, emotion with a temporary fix in the sexual acting out that feels good in the moment. And then usually what I hear from from the partners who have betrayed is they feel like crap right after. And so that those are also unhealthy coping mechanisms or addictive behaviors. We're using addictive behaviors to cope with unhealthy emotions or situations. Something I was thinking about when you were saying that are some that are maybe harder to recognize because it doesn't, come out as a behavior that looks like it could be harmful to someone else or ourselves. So like unhealthy ones I was thinking of is like control. And when I use that word, a lot of people are like, I'm not a controlling person, but control is picked up in a way to regain certainty and agency in a situation. So a lot of times the partner will even the one who's acted out, I've seen this happen will pick up these like controlling behaviors. If I can control everything in my surroundings, in my agenda, in my life, then I will have more certainty. So controlling, fixing. So a lot of times the partner's like, if he just gets into 
recovery work, then I will be okay because this will fix it. Or if I could just fix him, then everything's going to change. And Mm -hmm. so fixing and pleasing is one or like the fawning, we call it like a fawning behavior. Those are strategies that were picked up usually in childhood. Either we observed it from our caregivers or we picked it up as a protection. Mm -hmm. And so acting in behaviors, those are sometimes harder to see and they don't look necessarily harmful to ourselves or others. And they're not as noticeable as like what I would say, more addictive behaviors like alcoholism or substance use or sexual acting out, but they still require our attention. As you're describing that, I'm like, that's the work. That's another term is how do I do the work? What's the work? And that's part of the work is like digging into those unhealthy coping mechanisms and those unhealthy behaviors that maybe we're not even aware of and stepping out of those to create something new and a different dynamic. The acting in the episode was number 14, by the way. So if you want to go back and review that one, that's a good one. But yeah, that's the other thing is, okay, how do I do the work? You got to just do your work and getting some support around maybe seeing through some of your blind spots and those unhealthy coping mechanisms and having somebody help you. Because if you're in those unhealthy coping mechanisms, the chances are you've never seen healthy model, like in your family of origin, in your upbringing. And you don't even know where to start most of the time. Like they're like, oh, that's not healthy. Well, what is healthy? And so getting some awareness around that is part of the work. Since we're on the work, I would also include in that for the person with the sexual misbehaviors, seeing a CSAT, CSAT is a certified sex addiction therapist or getting in a group or meeting with a coach who's trained in addictive behaviors, getting a sponsor surrounding yourself with a community of people who are working towards the same thing. I think that's helps remove the shame of it all and gives you some accountability mm-hmm. and the work for the betrayed partner can include many of the similar things, support group for betrayed partners. Um, we have both at choose recovery services for women who are betrayed partners and for men who are betrayed partners. So a group is a huge way to get support a coach or a therapist that has APSATS training, which if you don't know what APSATS is, we talked about that a while ago too, but the Association for Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. So someone who has training in partner sensitivity, books, podcasts, all the things. But that's what, when we say the work, people are like, what's the work? And then I think the follow through with that, we talk about the importance of seeking professional help. And a lot of times people think that they can do this work on their own because of all the resources that are now available, which is amazing. Like I'm so thankful podcasts and books and all the things it is actually implementing what you are learning about. And then I just want to touch on the professional help for the one who has acted out. And I cannot reiterate the importance of finding someone who is very specialized in this field because it can invoke more trauma on you. And then also your partner, if it is not viewed from the partner sensitive lens of trauma. And so I just want to put my 10 cent out there. That is so important that the person that you are working with knows very clearly about partner betrayal trauma and sexual acting out behaviors. I a hundred percent agree. We say that a lot, but that's because we feel so strongly about it. Well, we've seen the harm like I see the harm that it's caused in uh, relationships and with partners and individual and all the things. And so, yes, Mm -hmm. I'm a huge advocate for that. 
I think another term that it's not specifically towards, you know, betrayal of relationships, but it's boundaries. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of clients who, you know, we've heard the word boundaries, but we don't really know what it means and how do we do it and what kind of boundaries are appropriate and what's the difference between boundary and control. Go back to episode 16. We did a deep dive with Ashley Levitt on boundaries and it was so good. But boundaries are for both partners. Both partners need healthy boundaries. Boundaries are a necessary part of a healthy relationship, in my opinion. And so don't look at it as a way to create walls, but more of a way to create connection in a healthy way. And so if you need help with boundaries, groups can be helpful for that. Coach therapists can help you. I would say a coach is probably even more equipped than a therapist because a therapist is helping you look at the things of the past and a coach meets you where you're at and helps you move forward in the present. And so a coach can really help you dive into what boundaries you might need and how to implement them and what it looks like to hold a healthy boundary. I just want to say something about the boundaries. I know we talked about it in the boundary episode about these maladaptive belief systems around what does having a boundary look like for me? But I say, if you look at a healthy relationship, you've seen that in your life with someone around you, they have healthy boundaries and that's what helped that relationship. And it's so good to learn about boundaries and how they can benefit each individual and then the relationship. Yeah. The next word that comes to my mind is detaching or detachment. Mm -hmm. And I get some pushback sometimes with my clients when we talk about this, because they feel like if they detach then it's going to drive a wedge in their relationship. I like to help people kind of see how healthy detachment is actually good. Mm -hmm. It helps us to step out of those maladaptive behaviors and to really take ownership of what's ours and allow our partner to take ownership of what's theirs as well. And I think that some healthy detachment early on is one of the best things that can help move forward the relational repair because it kind of, I guess, empowers you both to take ownership of yours. When we stay in those unhealthy coping mechanisms, it's almost like we continue to allow the old behaviors to happen or enable those old behaviors to happen. And one of us has to step out of that. And so if all you can control is what's within your own little circle, in your own box, what can you do to help detach in a healthy way and step out of the unhealthy patterns to create something new? So I think detaching and detachment kind of gets a bad rap, but it's actually a really healthy thing. Yes. And then I just want to touch on the 20 minute rule, which is a very simplified version of healthy detachment. I'm seeing these unhealthy coping strategies come up in our conversation. Or I'm seeing acting in behaviors. And I am choosing to step away from this for 20 minutes. And that is a form of healthy detachment. Of course, there's other ways. If your spouse is not showing up for you in an emotionally safe way, then they are not safe for you to share those strong emotions with. So can I detach from the situation, find safe support somewhere else to be able to give me what I need and evaluate the circumstance? And that healthy detachment really goes back to working to make those informed decisions, choosing to stay, choosing not to stay, those things that really important life changing things that we need to work through. 
and mm-hmm. healthy detachment allows space for that to happen. Yeah. You notice that we both keep using the word healthy. There's a difference between healthy and unhealthy. You can still be cordial and you can still be respectful and show kindness as you detach. And that's what I would recommend. Like stay within your value systems when you detach. Be careful not to go to stonewalling or silent treatment or shut down. That's what detaching in a healthy way is, is saying, you know what? I'm not feeling like I can continue on like this and I need some space, whether that's a 20 minute break or, you know what? I think I need to ask you to go find an apartment for a while or go live with your mom for a while, or I'm going to go live with my sister for a while. The healthy detachment can be an array of anything from 20 minutes to 20 months or longer, you know, depending on what you need in order to both step out of those unhealthy behaviors. And I often think people think of separation as like the next step to divorce. And I actually think the total opposite, like separation can be the first step in helping you save the relationship as you both step away and get grounded in what's yours to own and what's not yours to own and do the work on what is yours to own. I'm not saying separation is for everyone, but I'm saying, don't be afraid of it. Yeah. I want to elaborate on that just for a minute, because I feel like this is so important. It comes up so much in my sessions with my clients, this whole area of detaching what is like a healthy or maybe like a therapeutic separation. And Sue Johnson has a lot of work on emotionally focused behaviors in relationships. And she calls it the dance, even outside of the betrayal and relationship pickup, basically like cycles or the dance that we continue in. And it's not always healthy. So there's like relational dynamics that then they follow us into the betrayal and we're still doing those, the the cycle or the dance. And so stepping away, stepping out of that cycle, stepping out of the dance so that you can get clear thoughts is really big. It's like, I'm stopping the cycle right now. I am able to view it and I could see it happening in front of my face. Like I need to step away, get clear headed and stop the dance so I can think clearly. That's what I was thinking whenever you were saying that about the healthy part of it. It is very healthy. Okay. Let's touch on a couple more. One that is coming up in my mind is sobriety versus recovery. Mm-hmm. And I know that sobriety tends to be associated with addiction. So if you're not struggling with what you would identify as an addiction and there's been infidelity, I still think this concept applies and maybe there's some different language to it, but sobriety versus recovery sobriety to me means that the sexual misbehaviors have stopped. Like the acting out is not happening anymore. If there's a pornography or sex addiction, they're not viewing porn. There's not masturbation. There's not the sexual misbehaviors. If there's been infidelity, the affair has stopped. Okay. So that is like sobriety, just the stopping of the behaviors, but recovery is something very different. And I think this applies whether there's an addiction present or not. And I think that when I think of recovery, the difference between sobriety and recovery is when there is a willingness to be fully transparent, to have humility, to be vulnerable about what's coming up for them and to show empathy for the betrayed partner and with consistency over time. So when those four behaviors, vulnerability, humility, empathy, and transparency are happening consistently over time, I think that's when we're moving into more recovery type behaviors. Yes. 
Can I add honesty to your list? Because I think it's huge in the recovery to have an honest view of self and to be an honest, like to begin living this honest life free of secrets. It's like a transformation. Like I'm willing to step into transformation and what is totally included in transformation is change. So am I willing to change? And yes, it has, it's content and behavioral truth has to be heard and seen over a long period of time consistently. And that's what active recovery is. Am I fully invested? And behaviors on a daily basis that are going to keep you in that place of recovery. So if you're dealing with an addiction, like, do you have dailies and are you doing those? And if there's not an addiction present, I still think that they're in this recovery piece. One thing I see so often with my clients where there's infidelity without the addiction present is their partner is like, the affair's not happening anymore. It's over. Just forget about it. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to move on. That's not recovery behavior. That's not safety creating behavior. And yet they still have their maybe loose boundaries where they don't have an issue going to lunch with a female coworker, or they still have female Facebook friends that are maybe a little bit off, you know, that maybe their partner isn't totally safe with. So recovery behaviors are also willingness to create safety for your betrayed spouse, willingness to be fully transparent and create safety and honor, have some empathy for what they're experiencing. Okay. So maybe we should touch on one more. The cycling of thoughts are ruminating because I think that's such a big one for betrayed partners. And it's a common thing associated with betrayal trauma. And we can get stuck there really easily. And it's not a fun place to be. It's not a place anybody ever wants to be. In fact, when I have betrayed partners that I'm working with, oftentimes they come and go, oh my gosh, I cannot deal with these intrusive thoughts or this cycling of thoughts. Help me. Like, what can I do? to stop these thoughts because they're so tormenting. And so I think that spinning, cycling of thoughts, ruminating is another term that people maybe haven't ever experienced before until they're in it. Yes. And I just want to add and normalize this for the partners who are, who experience this. I have yet to not see this with any partner. Oftentimes this does happen. And I just want to normalize that experience. And it's very much a part of partner betrayal trauma. And I think that with PTSD, that's one thing that separates it is the hippocampal review. I have to make sense of my story and I have to look back on things like those thoughts have to be there so that I can make sense of what has happened to me. And also say that it's very directly tied to like, Cognitive behavioral therapy has a theory that says our emotions and our behaviors are directly correlated from our thoughts. So mm-hmm. the thoughts that are cycling are producing these really strong emotions that are hard to make sense of. And then it's just like this uh, cycling effect spinning. But yes, it happens. They're there for a reason. And I want to normalize that, that working with a coach or a professional, breaking down those thoughts, what are they there? They're there for a reason. They're trying to tell you something. Can we sit with those long enough to figure out why they keep cycling and to receive some clarity around what those thoughts are trying to say to you? What, what sense do I need to make of my story? Yeah. I think that's one of the things when they come up, our natural tendency is to go, oh my gosh, I got to get rid of this. I got to push it down or push it away or ignore it. And that's actually the opposite of what we need to do. We need to make room for it. We need to allow them to be there. We need to look at them, get curious with them, and then they'll move through more quickly when we give them attention. You know, it's like, I I imagine it kind of like a 
a needy toddler that's like jumping up and down at your feet and you're like, I don't have time. I don't have time, but you have to, we have to have time. We have to sit down and get in their face and say, okay, what can I do for you? What do you need? What are you trying to tell me? Right. And let's give this some attention and then it will move through more quickly than if we just try to make it go away. Yes. Well, even I think about taking your thoughts captive and what do you do whenever you take your thoughts captive? If you were taking someone captive, like a prisoner, what do you do? You investigate them. What are you here for? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to prove? And you spend time with that in captivity. It's me and you here, buddy. Like, what do you have to say? And yeah, getting really curious. What do I need to do to move forward from this? So yeah. Love that. So thank you for joining us today. And I hope that this gave you just a little bit of insight to the language that you may hear making more sense of these words and what they mean in your healing and recovery. And we look forward to um, meeting with you guys again next week. Thank you for listening to the Choosing to Stay podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, we invite you to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Connection, empathy, and growth. Choosing to Stay.